we're continuing our series in the Holy Spirit, with reference to the Holy Spirit, and we're looking this morning at Pentecost and mini-Pentecost. We don't, we won't use the whole time on Acts 2, but we'll spend a good amount of time in Acts 2, and then look at uh, other chapters in Acts as, uh, uh, as references to, or as instances of the Spirit's influence in the early church before we... Uh, look at our before we have our study though let's turn to our God in prayer <clears throat> our gracious God we come before you we ask you for uh, your love and guidance here this morning we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to study the third person of the Trinity what a delight to um, to explore the mighty works of the Spirit in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> there are a couple uh, Old Testament prophecies. Well, there's quite a bit of Old Testament witness of the coming Spirit. And I pulled out just a couple. Uh, first is perhaps um, one not really well known. Proverbs one twenty three says, If you turn to my reproof, behold, I will pour out my Spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. There's that language of spirit being poured out upon people, upon their repentance. If they, if they convert, if they change their mind, if they do away with the old ways and turn to the Lord, they will then have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Most notably, when we think of an Old Testament text that promises the Spirit's powerful influence, Joel 2 is the one to go to. And we think about this because this is the very text that Peter quotes at the Sermon of Pentecost in Acts 2. So it's easy to remember Acts 2 fulfills Joel 2, or Joel 2 speaks of Acts 2. In Acts 2, 28 through 32, we read, "'And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh.'" Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So this is a much-needed word in Joel's day when he was speaking against uh, the Israelites, their rampant wickedness, of course. Uh, He prophesied judgment upon them. But at the same time, there's also a promise for them that if they turn, that One day there will be hope, uh, there will be joy, there will be um, a a spirit. There will be a communion that nobody had known since. And that would come about as they um, would call upon the name of the Lord, be saved. The spirit would come upon them. And that day would also uh, be accompanied by great signs. And some of the signs 
You see there, Jesus actually spoke of when he was talking, uh, when he did the Olivet Discourse in um, Mark 13, Matthew 23, 24, 25, about moon turning to blood and sun darkening. Those are earthly signs of something uh, happening that uh, shakes very creation. And so the word of promise is a word that's going to be a watershed. It'll be a turning point in the history of redemption. And you'll remember very early on in this study that I had mentioned um, you'll, uh, the Old Testament spirit and New Testament spirit. They're not at odds. There's one spirit. But there is, uh, you'll be tempted to say, well, what's new in the New Testament, and I told you to hold off on that. Remember that? Some of you were frustrated with that, I'm sure. Well, you've actually already been given the answer to that in the last couple of weeks, but to be very clear, you'll, you'll have it again today. And so I'm going to quote Joel Beakey in his volume on the Spirit. He says, We enter the age of the Spirit, that is, the mediatorial reign of the exalted Christ. In this new age, the Spirit continues to do all his great works, but in more profound ways and on a much larger scale. So when, when, we, when we come to Pentecost, Beaky Smalley are saying, we enter a new age, age of the Spirit. And that is then further explicated with this phrase, the mediatorial reign of the exalted Christ. So Christ, as mediator, remember, Christ is our mediator in two estates. He first mediated for us in his estate of humiliation, in his time of his incarnation and his suffering, and his, his death, even death on a cross, remember that. But then with the resurrection, he was exalted, and he remains our mediator as resurrected, and not just resurrected, but as one who has ascended into that indoxated realm, that uh, spirit realm, the, the heavenlies. He reigns there. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So he's reigning there, and will then give us his spirit in more profound ways. So we see uh, in greater ways, in wider ways, in farther ways, deeper ways. Remember, the spirit himself doesn't change. But his influence is much more widely experienced since the day of Pentecost. So Acts 2, well, I won't read the whole chapter because, again, the focus is not only Acts 2, but I'll read at least here the first four verses, Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is, the event here is Pentecost, as we know. This is seven 
weeks after Passover. Pentecost is just the word that means 50th. Okay? This is an annual one-day harvest festival, which included sacrifice, uh, bringing the first fruits of the harvest uh, because of thankfulness, uh, out of thankfulness for the Lord. Israelites would bring the first fruits of what they've, uh, they've gotten um, as a thankfulness to God and as evidence of more to come. And so Pentecost is a very fitting event for Christians who will have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, as Paul would say in Romans 8. So there's this mighty rushing wind, and we know from Jesus' words to uh, Nicodemus in John 3 that this wind is analogous to the Spirit. Remember, the, the wind blows where it wishes. Likewise, the Spirit goes where he wishes. And he influences, he regenerates, he indwells whomever he would wish. And so there is this sound like a mighty rushing, mighty rushing, wind, rushing wind fills the entire house where these individuals were sitting. And there are um, divided tongues of fire that fall. And so either these divided tongues of fire, or it is the Holy Spirit himself who rests upon those in this area. Now, who are the, the ones on whom the divided tongues rested or on whom the Spirit rested? Is it the apostles alone, or is it the 120? And you might make a case for either, but given the preceding context, at the end of Acts 1, there's a mention of the apostles alone. He was numbered with, Matthias was numbered with 11 apostles. So the references from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of Acts chapter 2 might be only for uh, uh, the apostles. At any rate, the Holy Spirit rests upon these individuals, and um, then we have the fulfillment of what Jesus, of what John the Baptist prophesied. Remember in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist prophesied that he, John the Baptist, would baptize with what? Water. But the one who comes after him, whom he himself baptizes, will baptize with spirit. So that's the Son. And next week we're going to talk about the effect of the, of the tongue speaking. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time today on that. Uh, so next week is just on tongue speaking, the gift of tongues. But we know that um, from verses 5 and following that these men were speaking in native tongues that others could understand. So these were earthly languages, and the languages are, are given. Verse 8 says, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and on and on. So these are all native, earthly languages that the individuals did not learn, but they suddenly became, uh, they became knowledgeable in. They became, became what? Speaking in this 
information I had was there were speaking earthly languages or if they were just speaking something else that was heard by the participants in their own tongue. I don't understand what you're what you're getting at here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what verse eight says. So, yeah. So they were speaking in verse four, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so these individuals, these apostles, they're, speak, they're speaking in tongues, in other tongues, and then as we keep reading the text, we know what these other tongues are, namely native tongues. Yeah, every, and so like I said, uh, next week I'm going to speak about this in detail, but the language, the word tongue here um, is used as an earthly language. <clears throat> so that's, that's, that's miraculous, what's going on here, because these people don't know this language, these languages, and all of a sudden, they, are, they know them, and they are able to use these languages to speak, but not just speak randomly, speak a particular message. And what we see in verse 11 is that they are speaking the mighty works of God. Uh, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they are using our own tongues to declare the mighty works of God. And this language is used again later on in verses 22 through 24. <clears throat> when Peter speaks, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This is this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. <clears throat> so we know what they are proclaiming. They are proclaiming the predestined plan of God, according to which Christ would come to earth, and he would die and be crucified by the men of Israel themselves and be raised from the dead. Uh, they're, they're declaring the gospel. They're using this tongue speaking to proclaim the gospel. This is, again, a watershed in the history of redemption. This is a turning point. Because with this event comes the reversal uh, of the curse that was given, remember, in, Tower of, in the Tower of Babel. So they, with one language, sought to dethrone God, and God then judges them and scatters them. And so now, with this declaration of the gospel in various tongues, you have the nations coming back. You have God calling the nations to himself. So the nations of creation are then represented by Acts 2. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, <coughs> says, In tongue speaking, 
God invented a way to make known the person of Christ to all nations. So how does this anticipate the new heavens and earth? How does this effect of tongue speaking anticipate the new heavens and earth? I'm thinking of text and revelation. Maybe that'll give you a good hint. For the sake of time, then I will simply answer the question I gave. You know, originally, I had just had a statement in my notes, and then I put my, I put, uh, I edited it. I put it as a question for you guys. Give you the opportunity. Okay. So in Revelation 5, 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, 9, 11, 9, and 14, 6. These are all <clears throat> texts in Revelation that ex- explain God's purpose in bringing the nations. Remember Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will call all to myself. And he is the the Savior not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. There will be one shepherd and one flock. And so God's design, his redemptive plan from before the foundation of the world was to include the nations. And here we have some historical uh, way that God, some miraculous way that God brings nations uh, to the proclamation of the gospel. Yep. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, he is the father of, of many nations. So it wasn't that he would be only the father of uh, what would become the nation of Israel. But as Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham is, is our father. If we, if we have faith. So, yes, absolutely. We are Abraham's children. That's why we can say, sing, Father Abraham had many sons. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And we can, throw, we can extend our hands and legs as we sing the song. All right. <clears throat> so there's that, the event, there's the effect, and then Peter explains what is going on is like, you guys, it's not that people are, are drunk, okay? Because that's what the, the charge was. Oh, look at these guys. They're just speaking in languages they don't know. They're just they're plastered. Because now that's not what's going on here. But he quotes Joel 2, which I had read earlier. And so, so there's this all-flesh outpouring of the Spirit, or this Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. Now, if you text will help us understand what's going on here. In Hosea 9, verse 7, the man of the spirit was the prophet, or you could say the prophet was called. Another language, another term for the prophet was a man of the spirit. And in Hosea's day, the man of the spirit was a fool. So that was actually 
um, it was a, a judgment on the pro, on, on these false prophets. Okay. In Numbers eleven, you remember Moses. He says, "You know, would that would all be as prophets, and have the Spirit." Okay. In Amos three, verse seven, the Lord is most intimate with his prophets. Just read that. Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And in Jeremiah 31 Verse 34, we read uh, of the new covenant. It says, I'll just look at verse 33 and then 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor... And each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Uh, For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Jeremiah uses that language, least to the greatest, a handful of times. And he's covering all of his bases. He's covering all of the uh, kinds of people there are, men, women, you know, kings, servants. The promise of... There's a promise in in Jeremiah of Jeremiah that's seen here in Acts 2 that from the least to the greatest, they will know the Lord. So with this Old Testament background, the language, all will prophesy, okay, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This language, I think, means then all will have a communion that is commensurate with that of the Old Testament prophet. They will know the Lord as the Old Testament prophet knew the Lord. The prophet had a special relationship with the Lord, as we saw in Amos 3. So, man, this, I don't think this means that every individual is now going to have some prophetic utterance. A male, a female, a servant, a king is going to now have a, a prophetic utterance based on the Old Testament background. And I'm not, I'm not unique in this, okay? This is Ferguson, this is a few others um, that I consulted. I think this communicates a, a communion with the Lord that only the prophet had known in the Old Testament. So there is, again, that deeper and far, farther and wider and greater extent of the Spirit's influence in the lives of, the, of his people at Pentecost. There's a greater measure pouring out on all people, greater extent, Jew and Gentile. And John himself says, says this. Uh, he, he doesn't quote Jeremiah 31, 34, but he certainly alludes to it in 1 John Look at 1 John uh, 2. Verse 
1 John 2.20 says, but you, okay, so who's the you? Verse 18, children, all right. Children of God. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So the children of God have been anointed by the Holy One, who, who's the Holy One? Well, perhaps. Perhaps the Holy One is the, is the Spirit, but there's been the anointing. So perhaps then the, the Holy One is the Son, and the anointing is a reference to the Spirit. Okay? We've talked about, uh, Connor has talked about um, the anointing of the Spirit. Um, language of oil is often a reference to the Spirit's uh, presence and consecration and influence and blessing, abundance. Verse 27 as well says, um, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Remember Jeremiah 31, 34, everyone's going to to say, you know, the Lord won't be any need for a teacher. Well, here is a teacher, and some of you have been teachers. What's going on with that? is, Is John saying, and is Jeremiah saying that there is no need for a human teacher whatsoever? That's a, that's a good summary. Yes. <clears throat> you have the same spirit that your pastor has, that your Bible um, study teachers have. You have the same spirit. You have the same word of God. And then you can read, being guided by the Holy Spirit. That's not to say then you can throw out the historical church. Okay, how many of us have benefited greatly from men and women of the past, any of the present, who help us see what the Word of God is saying. So I think John, 1 John 2 is pointing back to Jeremiah 31, and again, it's connected to Acts 2 about uh, the Spirit widely, deeply, greatly um, is influencing His people to know the Son truly, and know his word well. Yes, D? I wanted to share in a bit of a commentary of like two sentences from uh, the ESV that I have. For 227, <coughs> uh, chapter 2, verse 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Believers have an illumination from God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who accompanies the word and teaches them in the truth of the gospel. So, I say that because I I believe, and and I'm sure this is that everything is coming from God, and it's coming through either Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. Would that be accurate? 
everything as in every illumination, every... Yeah, this is all from... All that is true, all that is good is coming from God. Yes. Uh, and we pray a prayer of illumination before we have the sermon text read. You know, we want... We depend upon God's guidance. We depend upon the Holy Spirit in particular to illuminate uh, the text for our minds, our darkened minds, fallen minds that have been renewed but uh, need, need God's light to permeate every crevice of our cranium, if you will, that we might know God truly <clears throat> as he speaks to us through his word. And in, um, in John 16, and Vicky and Smalley do well to draw out some parallels between Christ's promise in John 16 and then Peter's sermon in Acts 2. So remember, John 16 is part of that upper room discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples. And in John 16, uh, John 17 is his high priestly prayer. So John 16, John 14 and 16, he is preparing his disciples for his departure, but he's also at the same time um, reassuring them that it's okay that he goes, it's necessary that he, that he go, but uh, he's going to give them the Spirit. And we see what the Spirit is going to do. In uh, John 16, 8 and 9, we see that uh, the Spirit <clears throat> will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. <clears throat> so one effect, of, one effect of the Spirit's influence is the conviction, the world's conviction of sin. And this is what we see in Acts 2, in verses uh, 36, 37. Um, let all of the house uh, of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay? So you guys did this. You killed the Christ. And through the power of the Spirit, verse 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to, the, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall they do but repent? So we see the piercing of the heart by the power of the Spirit. And we see the world being convicted of righteousness as well in Acts 2. We see that Jesus is God's holy, righteous one. Because of the Son's holiness, because of his righteousness, from verse 27, he cannot, his body cannot see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And verse 31 and following, he that foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
So the righteousness of Christ was on full display at Peter's sermon, uh, through Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And again, in John 16, 11, there's a, the world is going to be convicted of judgment. And that's what we see again in this whole sermon is the death of Christ, <clears throat> judgment for sin, satisfied with the death of Christ and his victorious rising. So we come to verse 33, which Connor spoke of last week, I believe. I know, I did listen to it, okay? And I did tell him, hey, you might want to talk about verse 33. And he did. So verse 33 says, um, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay? He is exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father promise of the Holy Spirit. That's certainly a confusing text. How is it that the Christ receives the promise of the Holy Spirit and his exaltation? Well, he does... So you're anticipating what he will then do. He will then give the Spirit. Yes. So Richard Gaffin, uh, in his uh, book on the Spirit, uh, Fullness of Time, he says, at the Jordan, what happened at the Jordan? Jesus was baptized, okay. At the Jordan, Christ, conceived and so already indwelt by the Spirit, received the Spirit as an endowment for the kingdom task that lay before him. So remember, the Spirit was with, was, was with the Son as the Son ministered on earth. Remember, it was the Spirit who drove the Son into the wilderness. Okay. Now, I continue the quote. In his exaltation, he received the Spirit as the reward for that task behind him and successfully completed. So now he receives, he received the Spirit as an, as an endowment, as a Spirit gift for the ministry on earth. And now as he comes to uh, the you know, again, the indoxated heavens, he comes to the heavenlies, he receives the Spirit as a reward. How does the Son receive an eternal person? I have no idea. It's beyond me. I don't, I don't, it does not make sense to me. That he does is clear, as we see in verse 33. He receives. And then, we have the gift. So his reward becomes our gift. At Pentecost, this is Gaffin again, at Pentecost, the Spirit in turn becomes the kingdom gift par excellence, the, the best gift given to the church. So the, the indoxated heavens now come to indoxate the earth, if you will. The Spirit has come through the mediation of Christ the King into earth and is going to influence his people church on whom he will rest, on whom he will be outpoured. John seven thirty nine says essentially that the gift of the Spirit is inseparably linked to the glorification of Jesus. So let's look at this, because this is also a potentially baffling text. Verse 37 to 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. Obviously, John writes this after Pentecost. He, know, he's, he knows uh, from the time that he writes that the Spirit was, was eventually given. So he writes, well, Jesus says this about the Spirit because the Spirit hadn't been given to them. But they had the Spirit. But in another sense, they didn't. So this is not to say that the Spirit wasn't living and active before the glorification of Christ. He certainly was. As I mentioned in the first lesson, the Spirit was active in the Old Testament. Okay, he, he performed many works in the life of the Old Testament church. But it is to say that something new has taken place. In John 14, 17, uh, it says this. Well, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, the disciples, from the standpoint of John fourteen seventeen, they know the Spirit, for he was with them. But, according to John 7, there was a sense in which the disciples had not yet received the Spirit, and that was to take place at Pentecost. So Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, uh, details verse 17 well. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says essentially this, I'm summarizing. In Christ's humiliation, the Spirit was with the disciples because he was on the Christ. Remember, he was... Uh, he, Spirit, the Son had the Spirit as that Spirit endowment for his ministry. So as they were with the Christ, they had the Spirit because the Spirit was on the Christ. In Christ's exaltation, the Spirit is in them as the Spirit of the incarnate and exalted Christ. So at Pentecost, we enter the age of the Spirit in which we remain. So now we can make sense of uh, Paul's words in Ephesians 4, that God had given. The Son, after he ascends, he then gives gifts to men. He had given men the Spirit. So he gives what he first receives. He ascends into the heavenlies, receives the Spirit as a reward for his work, a job well done, and then gives that Spirit, that necessary Spirit, to the church at Pentecost and uh, here we remain in this spiritual age, uppercase S. A couple more things, and then, D, if you want to chime in, you may. <clears throat> Gaffin speaks of an eschatological finality, eschatological, you know, end times, last days. Uh, it's one way of understanding eschatology. He says, the Holy Spirit will not abandon the church. The Holy Spirit is here to stay. You and I are not in need of repeated Pentecost. One is more than enough. Now, a lot can be asked about 
those two quotes. Okay, the presence of the Spirit does not mean that he does the same things that he did do at Pentecost. That'll be something we'll talk about next week. The Spirit did not leave us. Remember, the Spirit was given to us because Christ left. He left his disciples and says, don't worry, I'm going to give you the Spirit. It's good that I leave so that you have the Spirit. And we need the Spirit in every age. We need the Holy Spirit in all that we do. We depend upon the Spirit. That's one of the vows we make, is that we will endeavor to live lives, you know, becoming of followers of Christ as we humbly rely on the Spirit, depend entirely on the Spirit. Thanks be to the Father for giving us the Son. Thanks be to the Father and the Son for giving us the Spirit, because we need every person of the Trinity uh, to live life. Do you want to add something? So I know Acts 2, so much there. We're going to move on, though, to to Acts 8. Now, in Acts 1 through 7, the gospel went into Jerusalem. You know, let me just read the the theme verse for Acts. Acts 1.8, But you will receive the power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that's what we see being progressively fulfilled in the book of Acts. It's all fulfilled, by the way, by the end of time Acts is done. The end of the earth is language for the Roman Empire, okay? And that's where it ends. So now, so Acts 1 through 7, the Spirit's influence in Jerusalem. Now in Acts 8, the gospel goes to Samaria, and we have this man, Philip. Philip the evangelist. He was, the one, he was one of those chosen in Acts 6. He did amazing things. He preaches Christ here as well. Uh, he performed exorcisms, performed miracles, healing the sick. He uh, performed mighty acts of power. All of these are coming from Philip's hands. But... We see in verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John are called upon to go to Samaria, lay hands Pray for them that they might receive the Spirit. So why would Peter and John be called upon to perform the laying on of hands and to give, really the answer is to give the Spirit uh, so that the believers there in Samaria would obtain the same power that was given in Acts chapter 2. Now, don't be mistaken, these Samaritans are Christians in whom the Holy Spirit indwelt, and whom the Spirit seals for the day of redemption, because whether you are in the Old Testament or New Testament, you cannot have new life apart from the Holy Spirit. That's not what Peter and John came to do. They didn't come to impart 
regenerative life to these Samaritan Christians. They had that. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. But what they didn't have is what the Christians in Jerusalem had in Acts 2. They hadn't received the power of the Spirit to accomplish mighty acts. They don't receive this gift until Peter and John come on the scene. So as great as Philip the evangelist was, he did not have the authority to give the Spirit in the way that Peter and John did. Again, it sounds odd for a human to give the Spirit, okay? But it's God working through these men to give the Spirit to others. And this is how Philip got the power in Acts 6. The apostles come and lay hands on these individuals. And uh, this might be the reason why Paul is so eager to go to Rome. He says that he wants to impart to them a spiritual gift. Might it be to impart upon them the gift of the Spirit that um, you have in Acts 2? These gifts, then, are apostolic in nature. These are gifts that come from the apostles, ultimately, obviously, from the Spirit himself, because he goes where he wishes. Then we move to Acts 10 and 11. And by the way, I'm only skimming the surface here. Hopefully, this week, you can go back to Acts 2, 8, 10, 11, and then later on, 19, and... Um, connect some dots that you might still need connecting. So Peter goes to Cornelius' household. He preaches the gospel there, and the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius' household, and they start to speak in tongues. In verses 15 and following, it says, the Spirit falls upon them as he did on the apostles in the beginning. What's the beginning? What's the reference to? I don't, uh, probably not. Uh, Pentecost, okay. The beginning when the Spirit had fallen upon the people. So between Acts 2 and Acts 10 and 11, it's been a lot of spiritual activity. It's been a lot of baptisms, a lot of people believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, being saved, men, women, children, baptizing, coming to the Lord. <clears throat> So Luke, as he's writing Acts 10 and 11, is saying the Spirit comes upon them as he did in the beginning. He doesn't say as he did in Acts 9 or Acts 8, Acts 7, because what happens in Acts 2 is that significant event. Pentecost, as we know, fulfills Joel for the Jews, and we see it being fulfilled here with the Gentiles. So here in Acts 10 and then reported in 11, For the first time in history, the Gentiles, as Gentiles, are given the sign of the covenant, which is what, at this point? Baptism, okay. They're given the sign of the covenant, and they're welcomed into these covenantal blessings without circumcision. No longer uh, will there be any kind of requirement for circumcision. Peter didn't have to lay his hands on them at this time because this was so unique an event from the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 8, Samaritans, half Jews, okay? So you have Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7, you have the Spirit coming to the Jews. Acts 8, you have half Jews, Samaritans. Acts 10, 11, now you have Gentiles. And we see that again in Acts 19, very briefly. Paul is in Ephesus, and he's speaking uh, about receiving the Holy Spirit. So this, we're talking about the spiritual power here to speak in tongues. These different spiritual gifts, okay, are accompanying that Spirit's influence. The fullness of the Spirit comes upon the people of God, but He is coming, you could say, through the book of Acts in stages. So it's not all said and done in Acts 2, as far as the Gentiles are concerned, as far as the Samaritans are concerned. So, so the people to whom the apostles ministered to come were part of the gift of the Spirit, they were all Gentiles? So in Acts 8, they were Samaritans. In Acts 10 and 11, and then 19, Gentiles. So Luke is... is in Luke's gospel, he gets at... Here's Christ from birth to you know, the cross he's, he's, and the resurrection, of course. Let's, let's show Jesus going from one stage to the next. In Acts, he's saying, let's show Jesus working through the Spirit from start to, from, from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. So the, quote, Pentecost in Acts 8, 10, 11, 19 are better understood not as repetitions, but as extensions of Pentecost. As I was just saying, uh, that the, we see the movement uh, of the Spirit being fulfilled universally from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles. Now, I gave you in detail what Robert Lethem writes in his Systematic Theology on the Old Testament Spirit, New Testament Spirit, how the, how the Old Testament describes the Spirit in the Old Testament, and how the New Testament describes the Holy Spirit. But uh, you see in these, there's continuity, okay? Uh, <clears throat> and you would expect continuity from the same eternal Spirit. But there's a more profuse lavishing. There's a, a wider ministry focus, as I've been saying. And th- one analogy I've thought of uh, this week, or this last week, was God's omnipresence. So we all believe that God is not restricted by time or space, that he is everywhere present fully in his being. Okay? It's not like there's a part of God here, and then there's a part of God in California the fullness of God is everywhere. You cannot hide from God. But in the Old Testament, there is special emphasis on the presence of God 
his covenantal presence. There is a special presence of God that is experienced in the garden, later in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And now, based on Jesus' words to the woman in wells in John 4, now we have the Spirit who indwells us. We don't have to go to a particular garden. We don't have to go to a tabernacle that's over there or a temple that's found over there, maybe hundreds of miles away. We don't even have to go to this place, Cross Creek Presbyterian Church. We are the church. The Spirit, who is omnipresent, fully indwells his people. And so wherever you are, there's a church. It's not a building, right? That's where God is specially present. That's where you receive his means of grace. That's why we assemble, so we come together on the Lord's Day to receive his means of grace, to sing songs to him, to hear his word read. Songs, the Spirit gives utterance to our voice. The Spirit illumines our minds that we might understand his word. It's the unction of the Spirit that pastors are praying for as they preach the word of God. And it is the Spirit who brings us to the heavenlies as we feed upon Christ truly. So there is a very special presence of the Lord who is the Spirit here as we assemble. Um, it's a few minutes, so I'll just end there, but uh, end my talking. You can have questions. Yeah. So is that basically like once the, um, the you know, reaching the ends of the earth, the Acts 1 8, once that had been fulfilled, it was no longer necessary for them to travel around <clears throat> laying on hands? Like, because like today, obviously, we don't need you to come lay right. your hands on us to give us a spirit. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I would say, uh, yeah, probably around the end of Acts. Okay. So I mean, this, this has, this, this gets into discussion as to um, the cessation of the gifts, you know, the termination of the gifts. They cease when the apostles cease. Because they were apostolic in nature, they then end when the apostles end. Of course, their influence uh, remains. I mean, you can, it wasn't only apostles that spoke in tongues, people, other people spoke in tongues, but because they had the apostolic gift. So you know, they felt this, the Spirit, they experienced the Spirit in these powerful ways uh, even while they were away from apostles. Um, but interestingly, again, I'll talk, about, talk more about this next week, uh, we see a uh, diminishment or uh, flattening out of these spiritual gifts as the church continues to uh, develop as the Word of God continues to be written. Um, and in fact, the gifts of healing, for instance, are, are fewer, farther between 
Uh, that's why Paul, for instance, would say, hey, Timothy, why don't you take a little wine for your stomach? Um, not, hey, I have this handkerchief that touched me and changed people's lives in the book of Acts. I'll just send it your way, put it on your stomach, you'll feel better. Okay, so there is that um, balancing out too, because the foundation is being laid and is just about uh, finished, and then the apostles, the apostles die, having written all of Scripture. And again, this is anticipating next week uh, in First Corinthians 13, uh, position that many reformers uh, have held regarding the perfect when the perfect comes. Um, yeah. Just have a, like probably 30 seconds, so. Probably just enough time for me to pray. I know I didn't answer all the questions that you could ask, but you can ask them another time in another setting. All right. Our gracious God, I thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you work so powerfully in and through us. We thank you that you have um, your name, the name of Christ, uh, proclaimed to the nations by the gift of tongue-speaking and the power of the Spirit through miraculous gifts of healing and, and, and miracles, Lord. We thank you that you so clearly uh, demonstrated your power, power to change lives. And we thank you that we have uh, the essence of that power even dwelling us now, that we might live as living sacrifices to you, O Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts for worship and that we would give praise to your holy name. Amen.